You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses, resources, and a wonderfully supportive writing community. I usually co-host this podcast every week with the very talented Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of The Wolf's Howl and many other books. But this is one of our in-between episodes, and it's a special one today because we're bringing you an industry insight episode with author Jack Heath. I hope you find my chat with him as fascinating as I did because he goes into the nuts and bolts of his experience and one of the latest developments in the publishing industry. We've spoken to Jack before in episode 364, so you may remember him from there. In this latest project that we'll be talking about, he's a bit of a trailblazer. Why? Well, these days, we're all familiar with audiobooks, but typically an author writes the printed book first, and then someone narrates it into an audiobook, which you might find on Audible or a similar provider. Jack Heath is no stranger to writing printed books. However, Audible approached him to write an audiobook, as in a novel specifically written for audio only. So he did, and the result is Kill Your Brother. After he started writing this book, this audiobook, Alan and Unwin then decided they wanted to publish the printed version. But while you might think that that should be easy, after all, they could just print the words he wrote for the audio version of the book, right? Well, it wasn't that easy at all. Audible wanted an audiobook of 50,000 words, so that's what Jack wrote. But Alan and Unwin wanted 75,000 words, which effectively means kind of like a whole other book had to be written. In my chat with Jack, you'll discover what led to this opportunity and also how he approached both formats differently and what he had to be mindful of when writing for a medium that was audio only. But I'll let Jack tell you the story. So let's get stuck into our conversation. So here is Jack Heath on the development and writing of his novel, Kill Your Brother. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jack. Thank you very much for having me on again. I'm so looking forward to this chat because I have so many questions for you. Now, but first, so that um, before we unpack all of the elements that have gone into what is going to be an audiobook and a print book, but with a difference. Uh, tell us about the, the the premise of Kill Your Brother so that listeners have an idea in case they haven't got a book yet. Ooh, okay. Uh, well, just just this week I was pitching it to some movie people, so this pitch should be very highly polished. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> it goes something like, Elise Glick is a disgraced athlete who is kidnapped alongside her brother and their captor, a middle-aged woman named Stephanie, a former sheep farmer, um, informs Elise that she will be released unharmed if she kills her brother. So Elise has to work out how she's going to get out of this situation, if it's possible for her to escape um, to break Callum out as well, and if uh, and also try to work out what Callum has been hiding from her that has led him to this situation. So yeah, actually that wasn't very polished at all. I did it better with the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great. It's so intriguing and such a great premise. But uh, before we go into the journey to publication, so to speak, which I'm really keen to get to. How in the world does one think of such things? I mean, how did this idea enter your head? Yeah, so there were a few different ways. Um, 
The first and most obvious one, the first one that comes to mind is I was reading a, a short story a little while ago about someone who, uh, there was a private investigator who was hunting down someone. I wish I could tell you what the story was or who the author was, but uh, it's that's long forgotten now. But the private investigator was hunting a missing person and found them kidnapped and then, but was uh, also captured themselves. And the kidnapper is like, oh, what am I going to do with you? And immediately as I was, I think this was an audio story. As I was listening to it, I was like, oh, I get what's going to happen. The kidnapper is going to say, well, I've got no problem with you, uh, but I can't let you go because you'll tell the police. So what I'll do is I'll make you murder the other person. So then you can't go to the police because you're a murderer. And also I don't have to look after this other prisoner that I uh, that I never wanted in the first place anyway. And then, so I often do that when I'm listening to other people's stories, I kind of get ahead of myself and predict all the twists. And then I'm really disappointed when it goes off in a different direction. So because this story was so wildly different from my expectations, I started thinking about, you know, my own expectations and how I would do it. And uh, and a little while after that, um, I got a call from my agent who was saying that James Patterson was looking for collaborators for his bookshot series. And um, and I went, oh, well, what, what was that random idea I had that was, you know, a much better version of this other story? And, and I kind of uh, wrote up a pitch based on that. Wow. Okay. So you wrote up a pitch and um, for one of the bookshot series with James Patterson. How cool is that? What happened after that? Oh, yeah. Okay. So uh, James Patterson's people didn't go for it, but they um, they very generously implied that they weren't going for it because they were wrapping up the Bookshots program rather than because it wasn't good enough. And the Bookshots program was indeed wrapped up. So these were a series of like uh, novellas, sort of 50,000 word books. Um, so they they were wrapped up and it, the pitch was completely forgotten by me, but not by my agent. So at the beginning of 2020, when uh, Audible started um, sniffing around for sort of Australian content, but mm. kind of not exactly bite-sized, but sort of short audiobooks. They were looking for things that were a bit round about 50,000 words long. And my agent had her ear to the ground. And so she submitted that pitch to them and they liked it. So, uh, so my agent again, called me up and said, hey, surprise, that, that pitch that you wrote back in 2016, it's, um, <laughs> you can write it now if you want to. And I said, yes, I, I was really excited about it. So prior to that, had you given any thought to writing uh, an audio-only story? Uh, sort of. I mean, my, my Hangman series, um, was the first series that I'd ever written that was adapted for audio. Oh, sorry, not adapted, just recorded as audio books. Yeah. And the guy who reads them was this amazing guy named Chris Ragland. And I loved hearing all the voices that he did, mm -hmm. um, and all the sort of emotional richness that he lends to the characters and, and all that stuff. So it, uh, it was really cool to be kind of experiencing my own story, but, uh, but through a, a different lens. And it occurred to me that I'd love to do more of that kind of thing, um, writing for an actor to perform. And, uh, but I didn't really think I would get the opportunity. I, I try to stick to my core business of just writing novels, but when Audible, um, came to me and, uh, with, asking for this particular, uh, this particular project. And I started writing something, um, designed to be just read 
just read aloud and and not mm. you know in print, um, I I I realized that well okay this is actually much more different than I expected it to be. I kind of anticipated that I would be just writing a short book, a fifty thousand word book, but instead when you're writing for audio, there are various sort of additional hurdles and challenges that uh, that pop up along the way. So. Yeah, That's just really interesting again. because now I want to explore that because, uh, as you say, you wrote the Hangman series and then it got narrated for audio. So you wrote yes. it as you would have written a, a print book. So mm. why? how is it different to write it, you know, for Audible? and Because Audible do book narrations of print books all the time. So how is it different and how did you figure out what was different? Yeah, so figuring out was trial and error, and mm. some of the things that I can share with you and your listeners today are, are not things that I knew when I wrote Kill Your Brother for Audible, just more things that I wished I had appreciated ahead of time. But certainly there's things like um, when you're writing specifically for Audible, uh, sorry, for audio, you end up leaving more room, more things for the actor to do. So you, you don't say as much, um, you know, we should move carefully, she said cautiously, like you you right. let the actor decide how she is going to read that particular line mm-hmm. and you don't do as much, um, it, it kind of helps to know which actor you're writing for as well. Like once Hannah Monson was picked to be the narrator of Kill Your Brother, um, I had the opportunity to listen to another audiobook that she had narrated called Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason, which was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um but I learned pretty quickly that Hannah Monson wasn't one of those uh, over-the-top voice actor type narrators. She she wasn't going to do radically different voices for the different characters. So I still needed to include the sort of he said, she said stuff to make it super clear who was talking. But I didn't want to... Um, I didn't didn't want to be the one always deciding what emotion the character would be feeling. Um, I kind of left that up to her. So sometimes there was stuff like that. And sometimes there were things like um, when you're writing a, a print book, obviously people tend to read print books faster than – so we read visually faster than we would have someone read to us, if that makes any sense. So um, there were uh, – scenes where I would write them in print and they would feel, you know, nice and pacey, but when they're read out loud, it actually slows right down. So if I wanted to have a fast paced thriller, I was going to need to be pretty ruthless with the, um, with the, the cutting that I was doing, like cutting out all superfluous details in the audiobook so as it would still feel, you know, fast paced. And to figure that out, did you sit there and read it out loud? Um, yeah, I, I did quite a lot of that, and uh, and I'm not <laughs> I'm, I'm not an audiobook narrator. And when I'm reading my own work, uh, I tend to do it fairly quickly out loud anyway. Like even when I give public readings, I'm kind of notorious for going too fast. So that was tricky. But the other thing I did was listen to um, I. I got in the habit of, because I have an Audible subscription as well, I got in the habit of like reading print books and listening to the audio books sometimes at the same time to get a feel oh. for kind of how different the experience was and, um, and and just to make sure that the that the readers who preferred yeah just so I could work out what was what would work best on the page and what would work best in um, in the ears. 
Mm. But that's interesting that you had the benefit of knowing who the narrator was going to be. So Hannah and you uh, and heard other things um, uh, that that Hannah had done. So yeah. that's not always going to be the case, though, right? If you were writing another audio book, so uh, if you were writing another book that's audio only, so what would you if you hadn't known that Hannah was going to narrate it? Would you have done it slightly differently? Yeah, I I think so. Um, so for the record, I didn't know at first. Um, I didn't know when I wrote the book, uh, when I wrote the first draft and sent it to Audible. It was during the editing process that they started talking about casting and they gave me um, samples from some some different actors. And it's funny, my wife, um, when they sent me the samples from the actors, the very first audio file I I showed um, my wife, I wanted to get her opinion on this. So the very first file I queued up was one of Hannah Monson's thing. And all it was, was something like, hi, I'm Hannah Monson. And this is my voice. And my wife is like, yep, she's the one that's her. Perfect. And I said, come on, you got to listen to the others. So I listened to all the samples and I spent a week bouncing back and forth. And I requested extra samples of extra things from the different actors to, to try to get a feel for, and eventually, yeah, Hannah was the one I should have just listened to my wife um, to, to begin with. I could have saved myself a week of agonizing but like you say you're not always gonna know so Mm. I think um uh in some cases one of the things that I would have done a bit differently if I hadn't known is I would have put more notes on the text but not in the text uh things like um you know just writing comments in the margins of this should sound like this or or this character is a particular kind of person. Mm. And I did actually have the opportunity to do that, but in, in a kind of roundabout way where when they were casting, they wanted some casting notes. So Audible wanted me to write a couple of paragraphs about each of the characters um, so as they could cast mm. them well. Because you're not just casting Elise Glick, the main character. There was also Stephanie Hartnell, their captor, and Callum, the brother, and all that stuff. So I, I ended up um, trying to trying to dig up all this stuff about the characters that I could put in that might give the actor some idea of what kind of person that they were. And it only occurred to me after the fact that that would be a good thing to include in the margins of future audio books um, when, when submitting for Audible. It's a bit like yeah. how in, in Hideout, um, which I know you know because you did a wonderful mm. reading of it yourself for, <laughs> for this very podcast, um, I listened to the whole audio book of that read by Chris Ragland and there's a scene near the end where Timothy Blake, the main character, um, is in this sort of semi-conscious state. He's been very badly wounded and there's a bunch of other characters around him having a conversation and the text doesn't say who says what. And I didn't really realize that until I was listening to the audiobook and realized that the narrator just had to figure it out for himself. He was kind of right. guessing at which characters said which lines. And mm. I, I don't think he did a bad job on that, but it definitely occurred to me that I was like, whoa, I really should be putting more notes in margins for to make the actor's job easier to say, mm. you know, this is not just this is what the, the line is and this is who's saying it, but also this is why the character is saying it, that kind of thing. So I don't want to tell them how to read the line, but Mm. they do need to understand what the characters are thinking. So we've really come full circle in that it's like like a radio play, right? Mm. Yeah, definitely. And you're not writing all of those things in because you have the benefit of being able to provide notes to 
you know, the who, whoever ends up um, performing it, so to speak. So you do you go you do this. You're writing it. Did you enjoy the experience? Because it is different to to yeah. the headspace that you're in when you're writing um, a, a regular print book. It is, and I really didn't realise how different it was until uh, it was kind of when we skipped the typesetting page. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, the typesetting yes. phase where I was of like, course. "Man, I so much of my brain space is usually developed to how the words will actually look on the page. Yes. Like you, you want to avoid uh, repeating to have having words stacked on top of one another yeah. or you don't want to use the same word two paragraphs in a row or mm. you want the the paragraphing to make sort of pleasant shapes on the page none of that matters in audio so mm. i guess that freed up a bunch of extra brain space to um uh to to think more about sort of character and plot and uh and things like that but it also means that oh when the the next time I write one, I think I'll um I think I'll do it a bit differently. I think I'll start with the dialogue and just write it as you say, kind of like a radio play, mm-hmm. and um and just put uh, things in brackets in between the lines of dialogue, like almost uh, so not exactly sound effects because it's not literally a. Uh, but I'd write it more like a film script, I guess, and then yeah. later I'd expand it out into prose. In um, when when I realised what was missing from the dialogue and needed to go elsewhere, whereas with Kill Your Brother, I really did just write it like an ordinary book and then mm-hmm. try to retrofit it to audio during the um, the editing process because I didn't know any better. So let's talk about the editing process because with the editing process, did the feedback you get was that specific to? making it more suitable for audio or was it uh, uh, traditional, you know, like structural kind of feedback? Uh, it, it was definitely both. And this um, this book underwent some pretty serious structural renovations. Um, partly, I think it was because I wrote it quite quickly. And sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad. Like writing very quickly can be great from a plot perspective because it means when you get to the ending, you still remember what happened at the beginning <laughs> and um, mm. and you, you can make the, the, the plot flow nicely. But it also means you're more likely to have um, thin thinness of details in terms of backstory or setting or uh for example so when when i sent the first draft of kill your brother to um to audible they were like yeah this needs a lot of work and the copy editor who worked on it was a guy named bill massey who was amazing Um, i've since learned that he's worked with some of my other favorite authors as well but he um originally most of the book was set in a cave and he was the one who pointed out uh that it wasn't really going to work in a cave. And so instead I changed it to an underground septic tank. That's the sort of mm. level of feedback and editing that we're getting here. But later mm. we got into the more um, uh, the, the more audio side of things where, for example, he would start highlighting um, sections of dialogue and say, look, it's not gonna necessarily going to be clear who's talking here because mm. in a book – you can you just start the next line and you know it's the other character yes. talking. Whereas in, in audio, it, there's a risk of it all sort of blurring into one. So he was highlighting spots where that might happen. But also there were things like there's a bit where Elise wakes up in the septic tank having been tranquilized or, I don't know, and 
electrified into unconsciousness with the cattle prod. I forget exactly which scene this was. But I remember that she's waking up in an underground septic tank held prisoner by this woman. And I'd written in, uh, she snuffles awake, fnia, like F-N-Y-U-H or something like that. And he'd highlighted that and said, do you want the actress to try to actually replicate this noise or do you want her to just make a sort of snorting awake sound? (laughs) And I was like... Yeah, okay. I'm not going to dictate what snorting awake sounds like for the actress. She can just make make it up. So, yeah, there were some audio-specific edits as well. Okay, so can you give us an idea? Once Audible said, hey, we're interested, uh, and you start writing, what kind of time frame are we looking at and and how many words was that? Yeah, okay. So I didn't start right away because um, I had a couple of other projects on the go. I think I was probably halfway through the the copy edit of Hideout at this point. Um, So beginning of 2020, Hideout came out at the end of the year. So yeah, I would have been editing that. And I also uh, had to, I I would have had a kid's book on the go as well. I usually do. Um, I forget what it was. So um, so I didn't actually start writing uh, Kill Your Brother until I think probably almost a year later. I probably started December or January this year. Yeah, yeah, it was ages. (laughs) So Audible say, hey, we really want this book. And you say, can you just wait a year? Is that what happened? (laughs) Basically, yeah. And I, um, I, and, you know, in, in retrospect, like I, <laughs> that's a really, I'm glad it was my agent who had that conversation with them rather than me, because I would never have the guts to do that. I still, I, I still vividly remember the years when no one would buy anything that I wrote. And I was so desperate that I would just say yes to anything. And I still kind of have that, that sense, the, the sort of never say no, because eventually the work is going to dry up kind Mm. of thing. So I, I leave it to my agent to sort of play it cool and ask for more time and stuff like that. But I reckon I wrote the first draft over a period of of about two months. Um, that's, uh, that was 50,000 words long. Actually, it might've come in a bit under length. It was kind of like, they gave me a 50,000 word maximum. I reckon what I submitted them was something like 45, something like that. But it had in it a range of, um, uh, there was a lot more backstory uh, than you get in the final version. So there were a lot of flashbacks to the past, but it was uh, consequently less stuff from the the present day. It it was like I was afraid of having the reader feel trapped in the septic tank for the entire book, even though Mm. that's kind of the draw card of a claustrophobic thriller, right? So when I got the... um, the extensible, extensible, <laughs> that's not a real <laughs> When I got the extensive edits uh, back from Audible and I was like, okay, I'm going to have to kind of completely rewrite this. Um, wow. I used that as a, uh, as an excuse to kind of, I did some things that they didn't tell me to do. Like I slashed out all the flashbacks, for example, and then um, I forget what I added really, except that, uh, so it was a 43,000 word book with flashbacks in it. And then it became a 50,000 word book with no flashbacks in it. So clearly I added something. (laughs) I wish I could remember what it was, but that's like an extra, um, probably an extra two months. So we're looking at like a- Of editing or rewriting. Of editing. Yeah, yeah, Mm. yeah. Why did you get rid of the flashbacks? Well, it was just like, um, I felt like it was 
in some cases, they were things that felt unnecessary. Like it was right. something where in dialogue, um, a character could just say, you know, you're the one who did such and such a thing without yeah. having to have a character of such, have a chapter of such and such a thing happening. But yeah. I think it was mostly just that the the plot of um, bouncing back and forth between present day and the past in sort of alternating chapters as I was kind of doing, that works really well in print because in print the reader yes. can kind of flick back and forth yeah. um, and, you know, get a sense of where they're up to. And I read this study a few years ago. It, it was about the difference. This wasn't about audiobooks, but it was about the difference between print books and ebooks. And it was mm-hmm. saying that when you read in print, your brain builds a kind of mental map of where everything happened. Like there's a reason you can kind of flick back to the page where something else happened on if you if you need to. Whereas with an ebook afterwards, they the study showed that people struggled to remember the order of events if they'd read it as an ebook rather than as a print book. But that means that sort of fancy footwork like jumping back into the past and then into the present and then into the past and then into the present, it works great in print. In audio, I really needed to stay in that septic tank and kind of keep the plot moving, the present day plot. So yeah, I, I think that worked much better in the end. So you spend two months writing the first draft, another two months rewriting slash editing it. Yeah. Was that – because you write many other things as well. You write kids' books, you write a whole bunch of things. So do you work on different things, projects at the same time? Or at this point, were you working solely on Kill Your Brother in those, you know, chunks of two months and two months? No, no, those, so those two chunks of two months each, Mm -hmm. I reckon they were probably about six weeks apart, maybe. Mm -hmm. And in that six week gap, I would have worked on other things, but during those two chunks, I wouldn't have worked on anything else. And that's not always typical for me. I mean, sometimes I'm writing something and then, uh, and then another publisher, so I'll be working on one of my adult books and then Scholastic will get back to me and say, hey, the new the new Danger book, we've finished reading it, we need you to make some edits. And sometimes um, those edits are fairly light and I can kind of quickly jump in and do them and then get back to my main thing. But with mm-hmm. Kill Your Brother, this was a new cast of characters for me. Yeah. I was writing in a new medium and I was writing with a new setting because this is like my first book set in Australia or explicitly set in Australia. And there were all these various challenges I was like yeah I really can't afford to work on anything else while I'm while I'm dealing with this this is an ambitious project it needs my focus and what's more it's like my first book for adults that doesn't feature Timothy Hangman Blake from Mm. the Hangman series and he's kind of a beloved character I still have this fear that that um, fans of the Hangman series won't embrace Kill Your Brother because nobody eats anybody in it. There's like no, <laughs> lovable, there's no lovable cannibal hero to to get them excited. So I really wanted the book to be perfect. So I just gave it a hundred percent of my attention. Okay, so you're giving it a hundred percent. Just give us an idea of your writing routine. Like, you know, do you have a routine? Do you have structure to your day? Do you have a word count target? Do you have a ritual that you have to drink from the special <laughs> mug or write with a special pen or sit in a special place or anything yeah, like right. that? Oh, I recently listened to your interview with um, with Gabriel Bergmoser and oh, yeah. his um, uh, parts of that were painfully familiar. Like <laughs> the, the 
the the procrastination and stuff like that. But so I do um, writing is my nine to five Monday to Friday job. So mm-hmm. I try to work nine to five Monday to Friday um, on just just the writing. And but typically what happens is it takes me a while to get started. I sort of get to my desk as early as I possibly can. I tell myself I won't even open a web browser. Instead, I do open a web browser. And the first thing I see is an (laughs) urgent email about something. And then I deal with that urgent email. And then I get to, that's right, this is what Gabe said that felt like an echo of something I say every day. It's 11 o'clock and I still haven't done any writing. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, then that's when I, I really start to get stuck into it. I have a writing target of 2,000 words per day. I oh, wow, usually, that's a lot. Well, I usually fall short of it, but I would mm-hmm. rather have like an ambitious target and fall a bit short yep. than have a not-so-ambitious target and pat myself on the back and every day and then not actually achieve as much as I'm capable of doing. And one of the things I've discovered, though, is that I, I tend to accelerate over the course of the day. Like if those first 200 words will feel like pulling teeth, but that last 1,000 words, I um, I have no idea where the time went. It just comes out. So um, I've learned that if I stay at my desk all day, I I can usually deliver the goods, (laughs) usually, most of the time. Now, we've spoken to you before uh, and listeners definitely check out episode 221 where we um, uh, chat to Jack. And the you mentioned at the time that you are definitely a pantser. However, I often talk to authors a couple of years later and then discover that they've actually moved away a little bit from pantsing because they need to be really efficient because they have to write so many books. I'm interested to know whether anything has changed on that front, especially with this book. That's so true, not just of me, but of almost every writer I know kind of started out as a pantser and then becomes a planner later in their Mm -hmm. career. And and uh, in short, yes, that, that has kind of happened to me. But there's a few different reasons for it. One is that if you get to a sort of, if you become a kind of mid-career author where you're at the stage where you're selling books that you haven't written yet, you kind of have to write an outline in order to get the contract, right? Like yeah. the, the publisher isn't, I'm not so famous that the publisher is going to say a new, a new Jack Heath book, fantastic. <laughs> um, I'll sign along the dotted line. They do actually want to know what is going to happen in the book ahead of time. So I end up having to write a um, uh, to to write an outline in order to get the contract. But I have found that the process of writing that outline means that I kind of pants the outline rather than the book, if that makes any sense. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I sure. kind of, yeah, I, I see, oh, this could happen, this could happen, that'll be really cool. Um, but it is still true that when I'm actually writing the the book, in the end, um, the best ideas are often the ones that, that come that, that catch me by surprise, you know, where I, I think, oh, there could be a really cool twist here. And then mm. I'll quickly write that in just to see how it feels. And then if it works, I'll, I'll go back and, and try to start planting some clues. And the result is that the ending I get to is often not the one that was in my outline, but the outline is still really important because it, helps me organize my thoughts ahead of time. And it means that on a day when I'm not feeling those brilliant flashes of inspiration, I can still just do what I said I would do. The The safety net of the outline is still there. One mm. thing that I wanted to add to all that, though, is 
I feel like maybe you need to pants your way through a few books in order to write a good outline. Like maybe you need to know um, to to get a feel for a sort of a that more exploratory style of storytelling. Uh, so as you can then, when at writing outlines for future books, go, yeah, okay, I recognize that a few of these things are going to be dead ends and then kind of trim them away ahead of time, like prune them, prune off some of the branches that you know from past experience won't work. Mm. So you're basically, you, you, you've moved towards being a little bit of a plotter, but allowing yourself to go down whatever rabbit holes that you know, might take your fancy or whatever direction that the characters or the plot might take you and stay away from the plot. But because you do have some kind of plot, because you have to to Mm. give to your publisher, is that simply a Word document or do you work it out even like um, chapter by chapter and try to to write to to, to that level? How granular is is Mm. it? You know, um, even if, if even even if it's granular in your head. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's a Microsoft Word document. It's <laughs> typically about three pages long. It's mm-hmm. not chapter by chapter because typically what it is is it's like a paragraph about the. Um, the the setup the premise you know because you want to kind of get to the premise uh pretty quickly in your book anyway like yeah. uh the bit the thing that's going to be on the blurb and actually that's the other reason that i wanted to get rid of the flashbacks in the audio version of kill your brother it was because it was taking too long for elise to get to the septic tank or get to the fireworks factory as i've heard screenwriters say like people have downloaded an audio book about a woman stuck in a septic tank who has to make a choice about whether to murder her brother or not um, we want to get to that stage as fast as we possibly can, but I digress. So, um, I'll have like a paragraph about the premise and then typically there'll be kind of a paragraph about each of the characters as part of my outline. Cause I figure the rest of the outline won't make much sense if we don't know who the people involved are. And then the remaining kind of page and a half is a blow by blow account of everything that happens over the course of the story. So, Mm. um, but not divided up into chapters yet until once I'm happy with that outline. And once my agent and my publisher are happy with that outline, because often they'll provide suggestions. They'll, um, and those suggestions are pretty good, by the way, like Reese Thistle was supposed to die at the end of Hunter and my agent talked me out of it. And I'm very glad she did because Mm. if she hadn't, then hideout wouldn't have worked at all. And, um, but so the writing software that I use typically is YWriter 6, or at least that's what I use to, to, um, to write my first draft. Really? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, What, what should I be using instead? No, no, no one's ever said that to me. (laughs) Oh, okay. Uh, There you go. I guess it's just that, um, Sometimes it's like buying a new piece of writing software helps to make writing extra exciting again and like makes you more motivated to get to your desk and stuff like that. But because when I I started out uh, in my writing career, I was pretty broke for the first few years of it. So I was looking for some free software and Mm YWriter6 is and was free, although you can optionally register it. And now it's just what I'm comfortable with. Like I don't want to be fighting against unfamiliar writing software at the same time as I'm trying to deal with my characters and plot and everything like that. But 
but it's a bit like Scrivener or so people who use Scrivener have yeah. told me in the sense that you can sort of rearrange your chapters and things like that. But basically what I do now is once I've got my outline, um, I then create the, uh, the Y Rider 6 document and then each chapter the chapter names, instead of chapter one, chapter two, or having cool, sinister, ambiguous names, the chapter titles are just what happens in that chapter. Yeah. Like yeah. I, that keeps me on track for um, reminding me when when I'm writing the chapters, I need to I need a constant reminder of what the point of the chapter is, so as I don't yeah. get lost. And it also means that on my left, I've got basically a, a super pared down outline that's just like a, a really yeah. sort of bullet point that the whole novel is there. And it means that this happened quite a lot in Hideout and it happened quite a lot in Kill Your Brother. And I've discovered that it's a nice way to work. It means mm -hmm. that often I'll be writing a scene and then halfway through I'll realize this should have happened earlier, right? It mm -hmm. would be better if this happened like five chapters ago. And then because my whole outline is there neatly summarized in bullet points that are actually chapters, I can just kind of drag and drop it in. And then afterwards, my, my future self can, can make it, can smooth out any kinks with the edits. And just to be clear to listeners, they are, the, the chapter title being the summary of what happens in that chapter is just in your working document, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's yes. right. It's not a, It doesn't not end up. <laughs> you don't no, get no. to skim the chapter headings in real and, and get the whole plot of the book. <laughs> yeah, right. in, in as much as anything else, I mean, it, the, the chapter headings would be spoilers if I, if I left them. Yeah. I'm looking at a document right now. This is the document for Headcase, which is the fourth book of the Hangman series. Chapter one is entitled Blake Tells Diaz Everything. And chapter two is entitled Blake and Zara View the Body. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about. It, yeah. uh, whereas the finished, in the finished draft, they'll all be riddles because that's what the Hangman mm. books are like. Great. Now, listeners, you just heard Jack say that when I – he said, when I was writing the audio version of the book, and that is a very interesting hint because you heard it here first, not only is there an audio version of the book – Tell us what ha happened after you submitted the audio version of the book, Jack. <laughs> yeah, okay, slip of the tongue there. So after I submitted um, the yeah the audio version of the book or some some version of it, probably my second or third draft, mm. um, Alan and Unwin was who's my my publisher for my crime my adult crime hangman series. Um, so they were hunting down the fourth book, Headcase, uh, the one I was just talking about, and um, I was a little bit behind on it. But when I told them about Kill Your Brother, they really liked the sound of that. So they wanted to buy the print rights to that, which worked great for me because that meant that I could focus all my energies on on that and mm. not have to have to rush the process of writing headcase but the problem was a 50,000 word book um, you wouldn't pay 30 bucks for it in a in a bookstore if you saw it it would only be about 200 pages long um, and Alan and Unwin really wanted to be able to sell this for 30 bucks in a bookstore so they wanted something that was more like 70,000 words long or well uh, 60 at a bare minimum 70 probably uh, 80 would be fantastic. So yeah. I seem to um, come up with another 30,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, and it doesn't sound like much because I'm like, okay, it well, it does I, sound like a lot. <laughs> well, I aim to write 2,000 words a day. So that's only like two weeks' work, right, Valerie? Right. Okay, sure. <laughs> you look at it but, that way. 
what I discovered was that, you know, writing an extra 30,000 words into an existing book is harder yeah. than just writing 30,000 words of its own thing, you know. And at first, I, uh, at first I, I really struggled with it. I was kind of looking at the chapters that I already had and trying to add a line here or a line there. But it didn't really work because I wanted um, – well, because if those extra lines deserved to be there, then they would have been there in the first place, you know. So I, I was kind of adding things that were just going to create a problem in the editing later because they, they were redundant. And it occurred to me after a little while that I could put the flashbacks back in. <laughs> so that was my, my first oh. light bulb moment. I was like, oh, wait, hang on. Those flashbacks that I cut because it didn't work in audio because the 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 world, the the um the the timeline was jumping around too much, that might well work in a print version. So I decided to put those back in. But then firstly I wasn't sure where to put them and secondly I wasn't sure if they worked. So what I did was uh, when whenever I'm really, really struggling, I tend to go for a drive and it doesn't have to be very far. In this case, I went, f I drove to a cafe that I like that was 15 minutes away, but the point wasn't the cafe. The point was the drive. So I, I didn't, um, I didn't listen to your wonderful podcast. I didn't put on the radio. I didn't put on any music. I just sat there and kind of stared at the road, hoping that my brain would come up with something. And what my brain eventually came up with was that I needed to, to look at those flashbacks on their own and write those as though they were kind of a, a, a novella of, their, of themselves with a beginning and a middle and an end and with plot twists and with an arc and with tension and all that stuff and make sure that they worked as a story by themselves and then decide how to divvy them up and, and drop them into the story. So that's what I did. Um, and that worked pretty well. I was much happier with the flashbacks working as a story on their own than I ever had been as, as you know, a, a sort of uh, chunks of an audio book. Um, and they still went 30,000 words long, but that was fine. There was something like 15 or, or 20. It was definitely a start. And then what I found was when I dropped them into the, um, into the book for the print uh, edition, uh, each flashback chapter started to kind of affect the chapter that followed it. And and it was easy enough to decide where to put them because there are a few periods when Elise is knocked unconscious. So that's like just mm. a very natural place to put memories from her childhood and her, her running career and stuff like that. But when I, after I dropped them in, I was like, okay, so firstly, the main bit of the story now has redundant information. There's those bits of dialogue that I was talking about before where people talk about Elisa's past. I was like, okay, half of this is now redundant and the other half is spoilers. So I cut a lot of that out. And uh, But it's still the, the, tone, the tone blending was the bit that was fun, like making sure that I was putting – bits next to one another that had enough contrast that there was lots of variety for the reader, but also enough interesting character stuff that it would inform the the sort of mood of the following chapter, if that makes any sense at all. And mm. the end result was uh, a book that's 75,000 words long. And so it started out as 50. That means that when the print edition comes out on November 30 this year, uh, about a hundred pages of it is new stuff that the, um, that the, anyone who's read the audiobook or listened to the audiobook won't be familiar with already. Right. So, though, with the bits that you wrote in the original 
version, the audio only version. I imagine yep. then you would have had had to completely rewrite those because you had so many instances where you uh, were trusting the actor to bring it to life. You you had to include a little bit more, um, you know, of the of the tone and of of the character and and all of those sorts of things because it was no longer the audio only version. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And I was hopelessly naive. I was thinking, well, all I have to do is write an extra 25,000 words of stuff. I didn't really appreciate the extent to which I would have to rewrite the, the yeah. other 50,000 words as well until I was actually doing it. But And it, part of this, it's not just about different mediums, it's about different publishers. Like different publishers um, and different copy editors and different structural editors highlight different things in the manuscripts. Like there were things that Bill um, Bill Massey with Audible didn't object to that um, the Alan and Unwin copy editors definitely did. So, Structurally, you mean? Um, or, or, mostly, or uh, mostly it's on a um, – with a sort of narrower focus than, uh, than that. It would be things like – so, for example, Elise, the main character, is gay, right? And a big part of – the story is that her ex-girlfriend is a police officer who was in charge of a missing persons investigation that slowly ties itself into Elise's kidnapping. So while Elise is down down there in the darkness of the septic tank, um, her girlfriend, no one knows where she is and her ex-girlfriend is not looking for her exactly, but um, her ex-girlfriend is discovering things up on the surface that... Mm. Um, that uh, that inform kind of what's happening down below. So sometimes the reader knows what's happening down below and Elise doesn't because the reader has some extra context about Elise's brother. So the reason I'm telling you all that is to just say that worked fine in both versions, but it was the Alan and Unwin copy editors who asked questions like, hey, how out is Elise? Like how many people in her community know that she's gay? Because she's being... Um, uh, she's kind of a social pariah in the small country town that she's in. Like everyone hates her because of a uh, because of a doping scandal at the Commonwealth Games. But as the Alan and Unwin copy editor highlighted, she was like, "Look, if everyone in the community knows that she's gay as well, there's likely to be a homophobic edge to this abuse, also. So you kind of need to decide how many people know and how much they know and how public that is. So that's the kind of thing where it's definitely structural feedback." but it's yeah. nothing to do with audio versus print. Yeah. It's just the yeah. fact that different publishers notice different things. Okay. So you did your two lots of two-month chunks, the first yes. version and then like the rewrite. That's for the audio uh, version. So when it came to doing the 75,000-word version where you include all the flashbacks, you, you rewrite the <laughs> first 50,000 words and so on, tell, talk us through a timeline of that. Okay, so that process started before the Audible process ended, um, I think. Mm -hmm. So in addition to those two two-month chunks for the audio version, there would have been kind of one final you'd call it a proofread, even though there were no proofs in the way yeah. that you would um, strictly speaking have it. But so there was a, there was a final couple of weeks um, that was kind of a, a month after that. And by then I already had some feedback from Alan and Unwin to work with. So I did have an opportunity to, 
um, I, I got the feedback from Alan and Unwin. I kind of had one last chance to jump back to Audible and say, hey, here are some crucial things that Alan and Unwin has highlighted that I didn't think of when I was um, rewriting it for you. Here are a few very easy fixes. Like we're talking sort of sentence level because the actor yeah. at this point had already seen the manuscript, right? So yeah. I didn't want to change it substantially on her, but yeah. there was an opportunity to change the final script that she would be reading from. So there were kind of eight sentences sprinkled throughout the manuscript that I tweaked to change mm. things like, hey, why doesn't the police officer notice that Stephanie's nose is broken when she talks to her later after mm. she broke her nose earlier in a chapter, that kind of thing. Mm. So um, so yeah, after I'd gotten back to Audible about that, then there was kind of a period of, a, a, I reckon around about a month of, mm. um, doing editing with, um, Alan and Unwin and a structural editor. And then there was probably a gap of about another three weeks. And then there would have been another three weeks of editing based on feedback from a different, um, uh, a different, well, a copy editor rather than a structural editor. Uh, and then there was probably another gap of about another two weeks. And then there was the final proofread. So they kind of, um, the proofreader had made hard copy suggestions, um, you know, scribbles in the margin in pencil. Um, and so I spent a, a couple of weeks going through those and making my own notes. And again, kind of not rewriting whole sections, but there was, there was red, some red pen from me on at least every page. So I was mm. still kind of thinking of extra things to put in or take out or tweak. Um, and then I mailed that back to Alan and Unwin and then just Friday. So like two days ago at time of recording, they said, okay, here are eight more queries and I no right. longer have the manuscript, but they were sort of very small queries. And just before you and I started this interview, I was dealing with the last of those. So <laughs> that whole process is maybe six months, which includes a sort of slight overlap um, but, of the audible but, process. But before you got that first lot of feedback from Alan and Unwin, so before Alan and Unwin got the 75,000 words, how long did it take to essentially make grow the 50,000 words into the 75,000 words is what I, you know, oh, to, to, right, to okay. give them that package, so to speak? Yeah. I reckon that was probably six to eight weeks, um, okay. that, that process. And those first two weeks, I think, was me kind of floundering, wondering what yeah. I'm going to do. What do I do? Yeah, yeah. I what, know. Oh, it God. wasn't so much what do I do, it's what have I done. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. I, why did I sign this contract? This was a ridiculous thing for me to agree to do. I, I got greedy. I wanted to have my print and have my audio <laughs> and eat my print too. Um, and then the next four weeks, four to six weeks after that, were me sort of actually getting it working and actually putting right. it all together. So, yeah, that, that's about the time frame we're talking. So you've now experienced two different... Um, uh, two different ways of doing things with your with Hangman, you 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 you've you've you write a print book, it gets narrated, it becomes an audiobook. With yep. this, you um, have written an audio only you know version of a book, and then you do a complete rewrite for a print book. If you could have a choice <laughs> next mm -hmm. time, which option would you choose? Yeah, well, um, it's. I, I hope I don't regret saying this later, but 
while I was writing the expanded version of Kill Your Brother, so the the print version, um, I was there, in fact, probably around about the overlap point where I've already kind of dealt with the audio. There's still a few final queries, but I've got the feedback from Alan and Unwen and I'm expanding. I was telling myself over and over again that, this this is a ridiculous way to work. I cannot possibly <laughs> do it again. <laughs> um, but the results are astounding. I, I think it's it's been one of the – it's probably the best book I've ever written, and I don't know that it could have been written any other way. And this has become kind of a pattern for me. The books that have the most painful, difficult, annoying editing process mm. always have the, the best results. And my last familiar the, – the most similar thing I've done to this in the past, I guess, would be when I, um, I wrote Hunter, which was published in the USA as Just One Bite, and I had mm. kind of two different versions of the book going on two different times. So they were both for print, uh, but one was for the US market and one was for the Australian market and they had different titles and the structural editors had different queries. So it was that kind of thing. And again, I was enormously frustrated and hated every second of the process, but was immensely proud of the results. So I think I would be willing to do this again this way. And I'm now embarking on a similar sort of journey in the sense that now I'm writing the film script of Kill Your Brother. Like it's not confirmed that there will be a film, but the, uh, but the screenplay is a thing that I've been asked to provide to a a couple of different producers Mm -hmm. to increase that chance. Mm -hmm. So now there's yet another version of the story for yet another medium, Mm -hmm. which is again, different. Like I have to make it much more visual now, like less dialogue heavy more more picturesque and all that stuff. And I think so. Yes, I would be willing to work this way again. And I like the idea of uh, using the strengths of the medium that you have, like yeah. um, just writing for if you're going to have an audio book, then you write it for audio. You don't write it for print and then just assume it'll all work. But if I did this process again, I'd like to do it the other way. I'd like to write the 75,000 word print version and then strip it back for audio that rather makes than. Sense doing it the other way around. I think that would be better. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Okay, so to sum up, what's been – how would you sum up the journey so far, particularly for this book I'm talking about? <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, uh, so confusing, frustrating, painful, <laughs> but also exciting. I think it's, it's great to feel like you're on the cutting edge of something. And that's kind of, and I mean that in two different ways. One, it's sort of a a personal skills development cutting edge. Like the fact is that Kill Your Brother is, I think, my 36th novel. So I've been down this road a lot of different times in print, um, but writing for a new medium specifically, that's an exciting thing to be doing. And the other cutting edge side of it is the fact that audiobooks as they are now emerging are a new kind of thing. Like there are more audiobook listeners, I believe now, than there have ever been before. And the idea of these sort of audio exclusive books, or at least audio exclusive versions of books, um, that's that's kind of a new exciting thing for me as well. So yeah, that's uh, that's been the, the fun side of it, the excitement of exploring a new way to work, even if I... Um, even if, as so often happens, I only kind of learn the most important lessons after the fact. Mm. <laughs> but that means I get to share them with you and your listeners. You can not make the same mistakes that I did. 
Which brings me to, now we've already spoken about your writing tips for writing a printed book previously. So now my question to you is, what are your top three writing tips that, you know, based on the lessons that you've just learned for writing an audio only story? Yeah. Okay. So to, to quickly sum up, keep the pace fast. That's tip number one, because you will kind of, you underestimate how slowly these things will be read. So the plot needs to move along at a steady clip. Um, uh, tip number two would be to don't be afraid of making things very clear to the reader, like, because bear in mind, it's going to be much harder for them to jump back and forth than in a print book and go, who was that guy again? Or was she the one from blah, blah, blah. You need to be pretty clear and pretty, pretty explicit and make allowances for the fact that frankly, your reader may, might be, you know, doing the shopping while they're listening. They, they might be looking at a shopping list as crucial developments come forth. So you, you need to be not afraid of, of um, being a bit more direct with them. And the third piece of advice, um, as, as I said before, make sure you leave something for the actor to do. You, you don't want to have the actor scream out a line and then have to say calmly, he said angrily. <laughs> like, <laughs> you you want to leave that stuff out. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today, Jack. Thank you for yours. This has been a great pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Jack and I want to thank Jack for being so generous in sharing this experience with you. You can listen to the audio version of Kill Your Brother on Audible and when the printed version comes out, it's published by Alan and Unwin. If you like the idea of writing a crime thriller like Jack, you might enjoy our course Anatomy of a Crime, How to Write About Murder. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our hugely popular course, How to Write About Murder, is all about creating more authentic action for your crime or thriller novel. Presented by award-winning crime author Candace Fox, this course covers nine modules of fascinating detail, taking you beyond the police tape to explore what motivates killers and how they go about their business. You'll also immerse yourself in the chase, from the murder scene and autopsy to the investigation that follows. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you'll get instant access and learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash murdercourse. Thanks for listening to this special episode of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Connect with us on social media at Writers' Centre AU, on Twitter and Instagram, and join our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Both Alison and I will be back to our regular programming in your next episode. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time.